Okay, uh, if you have a handout, you can take it out now. And um, we've got a little bit of a lead up, a little bit of introduction before we actually get into our passage tonight, which is Hebrews chapter 12. I wanted to talk about a the theme of this series, obviously, is my favorite counseling passages, is things that I end up going to over and over again when I help people or talk to people or have conversations with folks about their own spiritual walk. And uh, this is one that inevitably comes up, um, or comes up more often than you think it would. And so over time, uh, I found this to be a helpful thing to talk through. And I found that a lot of people actually have misunderstandings or have um, a very shallow view of, of this of this biblical truth. And I'm not saying I have it all figured out, but I would, I would love for you to think through this with me, and I think it will be a help for you. So what I want to begin with is the problem. I think the problem that I've noticed from time and time again from believers, these are always believers who are going through hardship. Believers are going through a hard time. They've lost someone close to them. They have experienced financial hardship. They have have physical difficulty, whatever. And, and, and sometimes it's associated with them. They know that they are running from God. And so there is a connection between their sin and their circumstances. And what I, the, the beginning, the first blank you have there is the problem is when we interpret chastening. I always pick this pen up first. I'm sorry. Give me a second here. If we interpret chastening, This is also the word for discipline, but I use the word chastening often because it's a word that occurs often in our Bible translation. We we mistaken chastening for punishment or judgment. And the way it comes out in conversation is like this. God is punishing me for what I did. Now, we need to really take a step back and think about this, because if people think about bad things happening in their life as God's judgment for for their sin, they might feel that God's wrath is being poured on them because of their sinful choices as Christians. So, Christian sins, God is mad at me, God is angry at me. But is this true for believers? This is the question. How about those who are children of God? Does this, how does this connect with our understanding of, of salvation? So my theme tonight is basically is when you experience the consequences of sin, God is not getting even with you. In fact, it's God drawing you back to himself. And we often mistake what God is doing when God is disciplining us or chastening us. We think of it as punishment. So what I want to start off with is I want to do some definitions here, and I need some help looking up some of these verses. Can someone look up these verses I have for Exodus 21, 23 through 25, and then Genesis 9? Let's talk about what is punishment. What is judgment? What is this? And, and I um, would like to begin by saying that judgment or punishment has to do with has to do with retribution or the punishment fits the crime. You've heard this before? This is a biblical concept. Let's look at Exodus chapter 21, 23 through 25. Who can read it for us? Yes, sir. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. Okay, that is a 
Familiar text to us, you hear eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you hear that. And um, what, what is being said here is a limiting principle on judgment. That, that uh, in this context, this is having to do with a woman who is uh, pregnant, and she is part of two men are wrestling, and, they, and they, they bump her, they hit her, and she falls over, and it's possibly she's miscarried. And so, actually, if she were to miscarry and have a baby that is dead, there is actually a life required of the man who did this, who caused this harm, life for life. But it's foot for foot, arm for arm, burn for burn. The idea is that you cannot, you sh- the punishment must fit the crime. It's wrong for us to have a punishment that is severe. Our, our government says, um, no, uh, what's the, how do we say it? Uh, um, uh, cruel and unusual punishment, right? This idea that if you are, you are doing something, like for example, if you were to commit a crime, if you were to speed, it would be really strange and really wrong for them to then uh, chop off your, your arm. You know, that seems really, really obscene and really not at all connected with the crime. But if you speed and you get, your, your insur- you get points against your insurance and you have to pay a fine and your insurance goes up, now that is fitting the crime. There's a connection there. In fact, if we keep going, um, Genesis 9, 5 through 6 who can read it? Yes, sir, Scott. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God may he man. Okay, so this is after the flood, and God is instituting the responsibility of human government here. We talked about this uh, actually Sunday. With, Genesis, with Romans 13. But the concern of punishment, the concern of judgment, is the idea of justice. Okay? And if at any point you want a clarity or you want to talk about this, please, please interrupt me, because there's a lot of room here for misunderstandings. And a lot of people bring a lot of um, baggage into these kinds of conversations. So the, the, the concern is to set things right. And you'll notice here, it's the same kind of idea. If you shed someone's blood, what will happen to you? Your blood will be shed, right? Your life will be required of you if you kill someone. If you murder someone, your life will be required of you. I want you to notice a couple of things. With punishment, there's no concern for the reformation of the offender. That's not in the discussion. It's not about reformation. This is about retribution, It's only concerned with, does the punishment fit the crime? Is justice meted out? In fact, punishment may or may not be executed by the person who was offended. For example, if I am killed, if I am murdered, I cannot execute justice on the person who murdered me unless you find a way to bring me back from the dead, right? It's impossible. Uh, That's why our system of government is the state brings the case against the murderer. It's the state of South Carolina against whoever, because actually the, they are executing justice against the person. It's not the person to person. It's not um, hill justice, as they call it in, in, you know, in, in, in hillbilly language, right? It's not you go hunt down so-and-so, you'll go get Jethro because he killed so-and-so. All right, you, you know, it is, you turn it over to the state and the state actually contributes here. So it's actually, it may or may not be executed by the person who was offended. The person, there may be a third party who executes judgment, in this case, government. Okay. Now, you can make the case they were offended, the laws were broken, and I understand that. But if you, you get what I'm saying, that the criminal, further, we keep going here, the criminal, the person who, who breaks the law, breaks the, uh, who, who disobeys, who, who sins, might seek forgiveness from the victim, but this does not stop the process of justice. 
So forgiveness does not interrupt the process of justice. If, if, if someone uh, sins against me, someone steals my car or burns down my house, let's say they burn down my house and I lose everything, I can forgive that person, but they're still going to jail. The, my forgiving them has no impact on their responsibility now to pay for my house to be rebuilt. There's still retribution responsible. There's still justice responsible, even if I can offer forgiveness for them. So forgiveness does not stop the, the process of justice. Justice must continue to go on. In fact, judgment may or n- may not be a result of sin. This is the other thing. Justice, if we're talking about retribution, we're talking about punishment fitting the crime, this may or may not be sinful. So for example, um, my kids are playing baseball in my front yard. One of them throws a baseball and it goes through the window. What should I do about this? What is the punishment for throwing a baseball through my window? Fix the window, right? Right? I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't ground them for three weeks. That makes no, that's not connected. You, you, now, unless I said you're not allowed to go outside and play baseball, and then they're playing baseball, and they throw the, that's a totally different story, right? Then they're disobeying. They weren't, theoretically, they weren't disobeying by throwing the baseball. They were allowed to throw the baseball. They just, they just broke the window, which is not a sinful act. It's a careless act, but it's not sinful. But the punishment fits the crime, and we all understand this intuitively. We understand uh, this because we understand that the, pro- the process of punishment should match what the crime was. In this case, breaking the window, you replace the window. Um, it would be wrong of me to insist on a whole new house because my window's broken. Okay, now I have to have a whole new house. Okay, that's the punishment doesn't fit the crime. That's not eye for an eye anymore. Now you're going overboard and you're doing cruel and unusual punishment. So this is, that's the idea behind punishment. It must be justice-related and it has to be connected to the, the, directly connected to the crime or to the sin. And it may or may not, the concern is justice, it's not reformation, um, and, and, and the, main, um, uh, the main goal is that uh, uh, justice is served. Any questions on this so far? Am I making sense? Okay, and I think it will clarify as we contrast it with, with um, discipline, with chastening, okay? Now, what is chastening's effect? What's the reason for chastening? Chastening, the purpose of chastening is not retribution. It is relationship being restored. That's the main purpose is restoration of a relationship. Or it can be teaching slash reformation. And the reason you know this is true is let's just say that, you know, uh, I was talking with Eric about this this morning, and uh, he said, well, what if, you know, what if your kid doesn't make their bed? Like, how you can chasten them. You can assign things that make it their life difficult because they're not making their bed, and you're teaching them. You're reforming them. You are helping them change their behavior through this. There's no, that's, that, you know, the, the idea also of, of chastening is if there is a broken relationship, what you do is, is in order to restore that relationship, there has to be some chastening involved, some training, some discipline. Normally, the chastening is done by the person who was offended. Okay, if you sin against me, if you sin against uh, me as, as, as a dad, if you're my son and you sin against me, then I need to chasten you. It doesn't make any sense for your Sunday school teacher to chasten you for sinning against me. Normally, it's done that way, whereas a punishment, it can be done by a third party. Also, what's the end point of chastening? What's the end point? What's the goal? Restoration or forgiveness, right? If we can say forgiveness, once you've, once you've gotten to forgiveness, everything stops. It's over. 
you're done. You, you have, you, the, the goal has been accomplished. You've had the restoration of the relationship. The relationship has been strained or broken, and once the forgiveness is given, it's been restored, and the relationship is back to where it should be. Okay, so when, ki- when I'm talking about in kids, basically, but when a kid sins against his parent, he has, he has broken that relationship, or ha- not broken, but has harmed that relationship with the parent. Similar, our, our standing with God, we sin against God, we harm our fellowship with God, and that needs to be restored. And so there needs to be discipline, which is that punishment doesn't necessarily fit the crime. For example, I'm gonna, if, you, if you believe in spanking or whooping, as I heard it once referenced, um, that is completely unrelated to everything that happened. Like, you, you know, the kid lies, he gets a spanking. What does getting a spanking have to do with lying? It's not at all connected. Like, one is with the mouth and the other is not, right? Like, wh- why? What, what is the connection there? Well, that's discipline. And discipline is meant to show um, the harm that it, it meant to be immediate uh, consequences for what's happening, and it's meant to, to cause an immediate um, teaching moment of discipline that, no, you can't do that and get away with it, that this is a small picture of the harm that will come on a bigger level if you don't change this behavior and immediately uh, grants, uh, once there's forgiveness and restoration established, then it's over. You're done. Um, so with these contrasted, uh, am I making sense or am I, am I confusing you? What, 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 what do you think? Anybody have any comments or thoughts about this so far? You getting it? We're getting to the Bible here in a second and why it's important to think through this, this way. Because so often when God is doing, God is doing this to us. As children of God, He's doing this. Um, but if we misunderstand what God is doing, we can, we can get angry at God and not understand what His end goal is. Okay, so let's look at a couple important passages. Turn to Romans 8, if you would. Um, what is God's promise to the saved? I have a couple of verses here in Romans 8. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no what? No condemnation. The word condemnation is the word katakrima, which is the word judgment. Okay, it is, it is the word judgment or punishment. Why is there no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because Jesus was judged on our behalf. Uh, katakrima, judgment, means being declared guilty. Okay, if you are declared guilty, you are judged. And what's the opposite of being declared guilty? Being declared not guilty. How about righteous, right? Look at verse 33, Romans eight thirty-three. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who, what? What does justify mean? To make or declare righteous. God has declared you righteous. He has justified you. Who can bring a charge against you? Who can make you guilty? Verse 34. Who is he who, what? Condemns. In other words, who has the authority or the standing to condemn you? Because Christ who died further is risen, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Not only has Christ died for our sins, he rose from the dead, validating or vindicating his, his, his sacrifice on the cross, and he's making intercession for us. He stands 
making intercession for us as our intercessor. Therefore, we cannot be judged because he was judged for us and he makes intercession for us. I mean, it's, it's beautiful what he's saying here. The promise is that no one has the right to condemn us. Christ has proven this condemnation wrong because he who is accepted by God sits at the right hand of God, speaks for us. That's the promise God gives us. No condemnation that God does not punish his children because the punishment has already been granted. The punishment has already been satisfied completely. Did Christ fully pay for your sins? Then what's left to be paid for? Nothing. Do you believe it's paid in full? Absolutely. I do. Jesus paid for our sins in full. So we're talking not about punishment. We're talking about when God brings hardship into our life, when God does these things, He's not punishing you out of vengeance or anger. He is chastening you, bringing you back to himself. Let's look at God's perspective on the wicked. A few verses here, Genesis 18, uh, verses 23 through 25, God promises, or God says that he will destroy the wicked in Genesis 18. And Abraham here is um, uh, speaking to God, and he's arguing with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. And I tell you, I was reading this verse this week, and I was, I was claiming this verse uh, for America right now. I'm just, I'm claiming it for our country. Because Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy that place and not spare it for 50 righteous persons who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham is asking the Lord, would you please not do wickedness? Would you please not slay the righteous with the wicked? And the judge of the earth will do righteously. He will judge the wicked. He will judge the wicked. Because look at Psalm 11, verse 4, God hates the wicked. We see this contrast between how God handles righteous and God handles wicked people in Psalm 11. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the ones who love violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. What does that sound like? Fire and brimstone. Does that sound familiar? Where does God rain fire and brimstone? Sodom and Gomorrah on the wicked, right? If you go down to Psalm 37, Psalm 37, verse 10, I have all these verses in your notes here. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. God deals with sin and those who sin. God will bring judgment on the wicked. That's the promise we have. So what's the difference between the condemned and the justified? Let's go to John 3 and see Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. What's the difference between the condemned and the justified or the declared, wicked, the declared sinful and the declared, uh, or declared guilty and the declared righteous? Everyone knows John 3, 16, but how about John 3, 18? Look at this. He who believes in him is not what? Condemned. Condemned, Not judged, not punished. But he who does not believe is condemned already, punished already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you believe, you are not krino. Remember the word earlier I said katakrima. It's the same word in a slightly different form, krino, judged. If you believe, you are not judged. If you do not believe, you are already judged because you have not believed. You stand judged until you believe, and then you are, that judgment is removed from you because Christ took that judgment. Okay? So what is God's perspective on his children? This is our passage, and I only have like seven minutes. Let's look at Hebrews 12. 
uh, Hebrews 12, and I think this will go quickly, but I want to show you if you understand what God is doing in your life by bringing hardship, I think it will help tremendously understand uh, how to think about your circumstances. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. The writer of Hebrews says, have you, for, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? Notice here, my son, do not despise the what? The chastening or the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Wait a second. With the wicked, God hates the wicked and God punishes the wicked. God loves his children, so he chastens his children. If you keep going, he says, if you endure chastening, verse 7, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of whom all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we all have had human fathers who corrected us. That's an analogy for chastening. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seems best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In training, the purpose of chastening is teaching reformation and restoring relationships. Let's look at this. What should our attitude be about chastening from the Lord? What does this passage tell us? First, we should not despise it. That's their first blank there. We should not despise it. We should not think lightly of it. That's what the word despise means. It means to think of it as nothing. We should not think lightly of it. We should not despise it. Secondly, we should not be discouraged about it. We should not be discouraged. What the, the phrase means is to give out. It's like you're, you just are under pressure and you just, you just give out and should not be discouraged when we are rebuked. And that word rebuke means to be exposed or brought to light or convicted. It's like when God un, unwraps something of our heart. Have you ever had that happen when, when you, you really didn't see something and all of a sudden God unwrapped something about your heart that was wicked and you, you had never really thought of it in that light before and God shines a bright spotlight on it and now it's, you can't unsee it? You, you, you see... I've had that happen in my life where all of a sudden, I, then I all the, look at my life and I think I see the circumstances where I've made bad choices and sinful choices and I see what God just showed me about my heart and I think, oh, that was the reason for that and that and that and that. And all of a sudden, it's like a light goes on. That is God's rebuking me. God is unveiling and revealing. Don't be discouraged. What's our tendency when God rebukes us and God, God uh, convicts us of sin? What's our tendency? Okay, to become selfish. In what way? When God, re- when you're sitting in your chair and, and the fiery preaching of this pulpit convicts, <laughs> I'm just kidding, and the Lord works through whoever's speaking. Self-defense, right? Do you not? I do that. Do we not do that? We say, oh, no, no, no. Or, or pride. We think, oh, I'm not going to like admit that. Or I'm, I'm not going to stay in my seat a couple extra seconds to deal with this situation right now. I'm not on the way home. If my uh, spouse asked me how the service was, I'm just going to say, oh, it's fine. I'm not going to mention that God convicted me of sin. I'm not going to tell anybody a sh- secret. Like we treat it like it's shameful when God convicts us of sin. What is this passage telling us when God, when God rebukes us, we're not to be discouraged. 
You should be encouraged. You should be like rejoicing. Thank you, Lord. Why? Because He just showed you something that's evidence of the Spirit working in your life. Praise God you got convicted. It's like like another evidence that you're, and we're going to get to this in a second, another evidence you're a child of God. Every time you're convicted of sin, it's like another reminder that you belong to Him. It's not something to be ashamed of or something to be afraid of. And the other thing that happens is a lot of us think that, we, that every, nobody else sins. I got all kinds of sin, but everybody else at Harvest, man, they got it together. And if I admit that I'm a sinner, I'm going to like fall down the ladder of spirituality at Harvest. You know, oh, I can't admit that. Oh, friends, oh, come on. You know that. You know better than that. What's your, why should our attitude be this way? I'm just walking through this passage. The chastening of the Lord is evidence of His what? His love for you. Do you see this? Whom the Lord, verse 6, whom the Lord loves, He chastens. So your, your chastening from the Lord is evidence of the Lord's love for you. And the chastening of the, Lord's, the chastening of the Lord is evidence that you belong to Him. You belong to Him. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. He's actually quoting Proverbs here, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And... Um, John 1, 12 through 13, talks to us about being a child of God. He says, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right or authority or power to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. If you do not receive chastening, what does that mean? You're not, a, you're not a legitimate son. You're illegitimate. You don't belong. Because I don't dis- we have kids, neighbor kids who visit our house, who play with our kids. I don't discipline the neighbor kids. I discipline my kids right? Kids are acting up. I tell them to go home. I say, go home. <laughs> I got to take care of some business. <laughs> I take care of my kids, right? I don't discipline your kids. I discipline my kids. Why? Because it's not right for me to discipline your kids. They're not mine. They're yours. And the same applies here. God disciplines those who are his. And if we are receiving discipline from God, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. How does this impact our relationship with God? Well, he does this um, verse 9, just as we had human fathers who corrected us, we should respect and fear the Lord. What is God's purpose in chastening us? He does this for our profit. You see that? For our benefit. God chastens for our benefit. God judges for justice. He chastens for our benefit. And He does this so we may be, what is our profit? That we may be what? Partakers of His holiness. You see that? May be renewed. Yeah. Absolutely. We get renewed. But if you look at that passage, it talks about being more holy. That this is, God has a desire. You know, God's not done with us. God is excited about chastening you to become more holy. You should not get lazy and think, well, I'm already at a comfortable place. You might be in a comfortable place financially. You might be in a comfortable place, like you might not want to move houses. You might say, I like our house. I like our town. I like our church. I like my friends. But you should not be comfortable spiritually. Because God has a purpose for you, and He is going to chasten you to be more holy, to be a partaker of His holiness. So how should we understand our chastening? Well, uh, briefly here, as we wrap this up, I'm just going to give you these in bullet points. We should not expect it to be pleasant in the moment. He says that. No, no chastening seems joyful, verse 11, for the present. We should expect it to be painful, but we should expect it to have long-term benefits. If you see that, he says, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless afterwards. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There are long-term benefits to God's chastening. So I, I, I say all this 
to, to implore you to rethink how you consider the chastening hand of God. Do not be ashamed of the chastening hand of God. It is God's love for you on display. God's chastening hand takes many different forms. It takes its form in conviction of sin, very quiet conviction, reading the Bible, listening to the preaching, listening in a Sunday school class in a Bible study or something, reading a book, God's Word working in your life. That's quiet conviction. It could be loud conviction. You could be uh, sneaking alcohol home, drinking, and be hit by somebody else, and all of a sudden you are pulled over on the side of the road getting a DUI and putting your face on the paper, and you are exposed to the to the town, like for, for a secret sin that nobody else knew, like there you are, boom. That is, that is public, and that is very, very difficult. That's not quiet rebuke. That is public chastening. What is God doing with that? Is God mad at you? Is God angry with you? Is God judging you? No, he's chastening. If you're a child of God, what is God doing? He's chastening you. And the whole point of chastening is to let you experience the consequences of your decisions so that you fall back in his arms. What, what questions or thoughts or comments do you have? You're, yes, ma'am. Yeah, the way, the way I visualize our walking with God is we're walking towards God, walking, trying to walk to be with God. The closer we get to God, the bigger God is, the more we see our sin, the greater he seems. And as we walk towards God, we are going to at times walk in darkness, that is, engage in sin willfully and not repent, and then God's going to bring us to repentance. He's going to do things in our life that knock us back towards walking in the light, and it's going to take uh, a, a confession of sin, First John 1, 9. And I think that most Christians today, when I talk to people, uh, we are very hesitant to admit our sin. We are like, you know, I don't want to really get into sin. You know, I'll, I'll admit my mistakes, but sin, ooh, I don't want to talk about my own pride. I'll talk about something else or my, or my lust or whatever. I'm going to talk about my mistakes. That's no problem. But God corrects us to bring us back to walking in the light. That's what God uses. He uses chastening to push us towards a right relationship with him. Absolutely, yeah. We don't have time to get into my whole diagram, unfortunately, tonight, tonight, but maybe later. Any other? Thank you. Good comment. Question. Yes, sir. Another thing to be appreciative for when you're talking about discipline and chastening, that uh, the reformation aspect of that, God gives us metered consequences so that we don't experience in, in an effort to reform us before we experience the full consequences. Right. In the same way that you might pop a two-year-old's hand when they're trying to stick a fork in a light socket. Right, right. Um, so if you can see and appreciate the metered consequences before it gets to the full-blown consequences. Yeah, and, and that's a really well said. We need to be aware that God often brings small consequences before he metered consequences, as you say, before, he, before we get full consequences or full chastening. So, repent. <laughs> like, confess sin. Don't, don't kick against the pricks. Like, recognize that God is working. And, and I will say one thing as we close. One fascinating thing about our current culture is that if you'll notice, what, has our, what is our current uh, um, judicial system obsessed with? Reformation. 
right? It's not the job of justice to do reformation, okay? That's not their job. Their job is to do justice. And when you abandon justice and get concerned with that, because guess what? You can't reform somebody who's just lost their life because they killed somebody. Like, once you go on death row and you are executed, you can't be reformed. So they say, well, we've got to reform people. Once you, you know, you understand that, that you, have a, you abandon justice if your only goal is reformation. In fact, a whole, there's a really interesting, if you want to do some studies, the Quakers really got things messed up. A long time ago, the Quakers up in Pennsylvania, they came up with this whole model of, of, of jails where they would put people in a solitary confinement and have a single window up in the ceiling. And they would look through the window and they would see the sky or see God. You know, that would be their contemplation. And uh, they would be penitent, hopefully, and they would repent of their sin, and then they would be reformed. And that was the whole goal behind their judicial system. And uh, penitentiaries are based on that model, penitent mean, meaning repent. That was the idea. Well, it didn't work, right? People went crazy. <laughs> people went nuts because the goal of uh, they were trying to reform people. They had a really messed up view of human nature. That's another whole discussion. But the, the basically, it's interesting to me that, that it, whenever you mess this stuff up, whenever you get confused, it will, and it will not work. It will not work. And so, parents, your main goal is, is chastening. It's not necessarily punishment unless it's a punishment fits the crime kind of situation. Don't judge out of anger, right? Don't, don't you know, show mercy <laughs> to your kids. But there are times when the punishment must fit the crime. But keep, understand what you're doing here and understand that when God deals with us, He is dealing with us as with sons and chastening. He's not punishing us because our sins have been paid for. I've gone over by about two minutes, so I'm going to have to close it. If you want to talk more, I'll be up here. I'd love to have discussions, but um, thank you so much for your attention. I hope this is enlightening. I hope this is helpful and gives you something to think about and hopefully causes you to think about uh, God's work in your life in a slightly different way. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for chastening us, and that is an expression of your love. I pray you would help us to walk with you daily. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you.